Thank you, Travis. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Christ, the Lamb. Grateful that we can call you Father. Grateful that we can interact with your word. We can be doers of your word. And the Saturdays are to be sensitive as we interact with your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Is there one missing here, Jer? Pardon? Okay. Thank you. Into the crucible, tested by fire, God poured my spirit to suffer and burn. There in agony, fainting and heart sore, I cried to him for relief from distress. Father, so weak am I, Bearing this testing, gone is my strength till I see it no more. How can I run the race when I am so slow, Lord? Weary and weakened, I plead for thy help. Softly he spoke to me, within this crucible, I shall yet try thee to come forth as gold. Trust in the goldsmith to fashion a beautiful object to glorify Jesus alone. So allowed him to do as he willeth. Silently under his hand I will trust. He's my sufficiency. What matters weakness? God is my help. I shall come forth as gold. Written by Arlene Updike years ago when they were ministering in Africa. Is it possible the saints to whom Peter writes in his first epistle, felt like they were in God's crucible. Persecution. Rejection. Why? They were living out God's will for them. In 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, Peter encourages the saints to continue to be faithful. And we will read 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6 together. First Peter, chapter 4, 1 through 6. <clears throat> Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. 
In the context of the passage, we know that Peter is writing to people who are going through persecution and difficulty. He's writing to encourage them, spurring them on to persevering. In chapter 3, he had encouraged them to be ready to give an answer when someone asks you of the reason of the hope you have. And then he talks about Christ's suffering. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he talks about Christ being put to death. Then there's a resurrection. And as a result, he has gone to heaven. And Christ is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, and submission to him. In light of that, Peter says, Christ suffered, so arm yourself with the same attitude. Be willing to suffer. Christ suffered for obedience to his Father. You be willing to suffer in obedience to the Father. And he says, those who have suffered know are done with sin. And the idea seems to be that they have set their life on a focus of, I'm going to obey God even if it costs me my life. So they're not toying around with sin, not yielding to sin as a pattern of life. But in that context, Peter says, you spend enough time living as the pagans do. He talks about debauchery, lust, drunkenness, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And apparently the young believers, pagans, were saying, we don't understand. Why won't they join in in our sins? So what do they do? Peter says, they heap abuse in you. They criticize you. They tear you down. Verse 5 says, but. It's not the end of the story. They heap abuse in you, but that's not the end of the, end of the story. They will have to give an account to him who will judge the living and the dead. You know, judgment tends to have a Positive impact in daily living. Think about school. If there was no judgment in school, no test, what would happen? What would happen in driving if there were no radar, no police sitting out there and uh, checking speed? On a job, if there was never an evaluation, how would we tend to respond? And Peter here, as he writes to the saints who are being persecuted, says, but they think it's strange that you don't plunge in, so they heap abuse. But the contrast, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they, who's the they referring to? They would refer to verse 4, or 3 and 4. The pagans who are living in all kinds of sin, but they will give an account. They will give an answer for how they are treating you, 
how they're responding to you. They'll give an answer. They'll have to respond. It's not the end of the world when you're being criticized as a saint, Peter says, but they will have to give an account. To give an account, to give an answer. Give an account for how they have treated these people. Give an account for their life. God's judgment is not always immediate, as in this context, it's not always immediate. The judgment will come later. But we need to recognize that delayed judgment does not mean that there is no judgment. But he's ready to encourage him, he says, they who heap abuse in you will have to give an account to him, a reference to God, who will judge, make a distinction between, check out their action, to call to an account, It will have to give an account. For there to be judgment, there has to be some type of objective standard that has gone by, and the text does not spell that out, but it would involve, obviously, God in the context. God's saying, you're not responding. You give an account to me. I'm the standard And that is revealed somewhat in creation through the prophets, through Christ, through Scripture. Measured in light of the standard. That's the idea of judgment. He says the judgment will be the living and the dead. The phrase... The living and the dead indicates the universal scope of God's judgment. The claim so popular in today's intellectual world that truth is socially constructed opposes ideas of universal truth. When applied to religious thought, it implies that a given religion is true only for those who believe it. But first, Peter teaches here that the gospel of God's forgiveness And judgment is in Christ is true, not only for believing Christians, but for all people as well. The universal claim to truth was as offensive to the first century Greek world of thought as it has become in today's pluralistic culture. The apostle teaches here that no one escapes God's judgment, which will either acquit or condemn based on response to Christ, the living stone or the stumbling stone, and that ties in with chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it talks about Christ becoming the capstone, and men stumble over that. So to kind of rehash what I just said, truth that is socially constructed opposed to the idea of universal truth. Well, this is what we think. But God says there's a day of judgment coming. Coming. There's a thought of a given religion is true only for those who believe it. Peter's teaching that the gospel of God's forgiveness and judgment in Christ is true not only for believers, but for all people. 
those who are heaping abuse on Peter's hearers, he says, they will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The universal claim of truth was as offensive in the first century world of thought as it has become today. No one escapes God's judgment, as I said earlier, which will either acquit or condemn based upon what they do with Christ, the living stone, and how they treated believers. Peter notes that those who blaspheme God by maligning Christians for their righteous living will have to give an account themselves to the one who prepared to the one prepared to judge the living and the dead. Although elsewhere in the New Testament and in Christian creeds, Christ is often identified as a judge of mankind, it is more likely in this passage, the one prepared to judge the living and the dead refers to God the Father because Christ takes the role of example in this passage. Christ does not take judgment into his own hands, but instead entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. That is God the Father, according to chapter 2 and verse 23. Judging justly involves a standard. Justly is seeing everything correctly. Thus there is no wrong conclusion. Following the example of Christ, is it is likewise to their creator that Peter instructs his readers to look for vindication. Not looking for vindication in the world in which they live, but in God and the fact that he is going to judge. Since the time of the ancient church, the puzzling thought of preaching to the dead in verse 6 has prompted two general interpretations. Those who support a afterlife, or I'm sorry, after death opportunity for conversion. Take verse 6 as a broader instance of Christ preaching to the spirits, as mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 19. Others take it as a to refer to those who are spiritually dead, even though physically alive. In the immediate context, I think Paul or Peter's point is that death does not exempt a person from God's coming judgment. I'll comment more on that. I think Peter is making a point. Accountability after death was not widely taught in the pagan world. With such an assumption, a pagan critic could reasonably question what good is the gospel? since it is so restrictive of behavior in this life, and then the believer dies like everyone else. Peter, however, teaches that because people will be judged even after physical death, contrary to pagan expectation, the gospel message of forgiveness and judgment that has been preached to those who are now dead, whether they became believers or not, is still effective. Death does not invalidate either the promises 
or the warnings of the gospel of Christ. Death does not invalidate either the promises or warnings of the gospel of Christ. The thinking of Peter's hearers in light of their understanding the pagans, the pagans would be thinking, why do these people live in sensitivity to God when they die, it's all done. Peter is saying, no, it's not all done. There is a judgment. Peter's claim not only would warn the unbeliever, but also encourage Christians concerning believers who may have passed on. Peter reassures his readers that the effectiveness of the gospel continues after physical death to be the basis for God's judgment. And therefore, a decision to live for Christ in this life is truly the right decision, even despite appearances of the contrary, as judged by the world's reasoning. The world's reasoning being, you live for God now and you die and it's done. Peter's saying no. God's ready to judge the living. He's ready to judge the dead. And we're going to look at just several other passages in context of judgment. <clears throat> Go to Romans chapter 14. Just to get a feel for the fact that judgment is not only mentioned in Peter, Paul also mentions it in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is in the context of the weak and strong brother. Some people saying it's okay to eat certain things. Some people say, no, it's not okay to eat certain things. Some people saying it's okay to do on this day. And others said, no, you shouldn't. But it's in that context in verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, writing to believers, and that's in the context of Believers standing before God's judgment seat. But again, the idea of judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we won't turn to that passage, but in verses 6 through 10, talks again about judgment. In James 3, and we will turn to that passage, we find that James is writing to believers And as he writes to them, he talks about teachers. He says in verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why? Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. A judging 
and those who teach being judged more strictly. It is what I would say an awesome responsibility to teach for God because there comes a stricter judgment. We won't turn to Revelation 2 and 3. Well, before that, Matthew 25, we find that uh, there, there's a judgment that takes place. The Son of Man comes in his glory. There's a judgment of the sheep and the goats. In Revelation 2 and 3, we find that even in the churches to whom Christ is speaking in Asia Minor years ago, there was a judgment made. And he says, you're to be commended for this or you're lacking in this. But a judgment taking place. In Revelation chapter 20, we have what we call the white throne judgment. Where the book of life is open. But some parallel passages just to stop and think about the judgment of God. God's judgment sometimes may be immediate, as with Adam and Eve as far as being cast out of the garden. Or Cain, or David when confronted by Nathan. We know that the child died soon after that. Or it may come years later. God told Noah there was a flood going to come, but time passed before that judgment came. Israel spent time in Babylon, but it did not come immediately. It came years after disobedience. Judgment will come. Delayed judgment does not mean it will not come. Now back to 1 Peter. This is the reason the gospel was preached in verse 6 to those who now are now dead, so that they are judged according to man in regard to the body, but live to God in, according, or in regard to the spirit. Peter says the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. In light of the context, and this is my understanding, and I'm not going to die over my understanding of this passage, but it seems to refer to believers who were experiencing the heaping of abuse upon them by unbelievers while living. Well, this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And part of the reason I would say that is so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. So here are saints being judged in the body, in the flesh, while they're on this earth, as not being willing to go along with the flood of dissipation mentioned in verses 3 and 4. They heard preaching. They were judged according to men in regard to the body while living in the body. But, live according to God in regard to the spirit. And my take is that live according to God in regard to the spirit, they've already passed on. They're in a different <clears throat> world. They don't have their fleshly body. And I would tie in that with chapter 3 <clears throat> and verse 18, where it talks about Christ dying in his body 
but being raised in the spirit. He had a different body, a different form. And again, my take would be that the gospel had been preached. People had come to Christ. Some of them were already dead. They were judged by men while living on this earth. But they pass on and they are in a different world of influence, a different sphere, and God is at work. And that would be an encouragement to this living those that have passed on were judged. But that's not the end. God is going to judge the living and the dead. And they're now living according to God and the Spirit, the unseen realm in a different atmosphere than the flesh. And again, I'm not going to die over that interpretation. But I think Peter is clearly seeking to encourage persecuted believers. Be faithful. Your death does not mean the message is incorrect. Remember, unbelievers will be judged also. So the thinking was, why live on this earth godly if you die and that's it? And Peter says, no. God will judge the living and the dead, those who are maligning you, heaping abuse in you, they will be judged. And those who have, ado- have died and were judged by men, those believers, they live in a different realm now. There is a future. Howard Marshall and his commentary in Peter, and I'm reading somewhat extensively, Whatever be the human verdict on such a way of life, it stands under divine judgment. Those who practice it and who abuse Christians for failing to live the same way may seem to have the upper hand for the time being. But the last word will be with God. He is already prepared to judge every person, both living and dead. A time will come when world history will stop and God will intervene to judge the world. Those who are still alive will face God. and Those who have died will be raised up to answer for themselves before God. Because there will be a final judgment, what the world thinks of Christians, and what the world thinks of Christians does not matter. What matters is the twofold fact that the pagans will have to answer to God for their refusal to obey him, and that those who heard and believed the gospel will be vindicated by God and enjoy eternal life. Christians may have been condemned while they were still in the body. Their physical death may have been regarded as evidence of their condemnation, but in accordance with God's standard of judgment, they will enjoy life in the realm of the Spirit. This future life is theirs because the gospel was preached to them And they responded to it. Thus Peter has drawn the contrast between pagan and Christian lifestyles. And he has shown that Christians must be prepared to suffer rather than revert to the lifestyle they had followed before their conversion. This is not an easy message for Christians to proclaim in the world today with its firm belief that physical death is the end and that one should conduct a way of life within that horizon. 
But plenty of educated people in the ancient world believe just that. And so Peter's message does not require translation for today. In addition to the fact of future judgment, we need to stress the reality of God's opposition to worldly, dissolute behavior and to demonstrate that such a lifestyle contains the seeds of its own destruction, both for those who practice it and for those who are harmed by their actions. It is precisely this latter idea that today's permissive society refuses to believe. How much more necessary then that Christians recognize and testify to it as compellingly and as urgently as possible. End of quote. For Peter's hearers and for believers in Christ today, Peter says, Continue to be faithful. Accept abuse. Continue to live godly. There is a judgment day coming. Be faithful. Don't merely look at the present. Sometime back, Jane Killian gave me this poem. We're called to follow his example, called to suffer for our faith to suffer hardships and injustice, and to do it with all grace. Yet, so often we question, Lord, why does this have to be? As we go through trials and suffering, or those we love to et- lose those we love to eternity. To develop endurance and character, and in him to gain deepest trust. Follow his example, God says we must. For the trials in our lives, for the testimonies others see, God's love and grace is there for them, as it is for you and me. Let's pray together. Father, You call us to be faithful. Just as the saints in Peter's day were experiencing hardship and persecution because of their faith and living in obedience to you, we at times may experience some hardship. Or there may be some coming in the future. May we be found faithful. May we persevere. May we keep in mind that there is an accounting to you. Not only for believers, but also for those that haven't believed. We don't know all that there is to know about judgment. May we live in light of the fact that there's more to life than this life. And as Peter exhorts the people to whom he is writing to be faithful in the midst of having abuse heaped upon them, may we be found faithful in our lives each day. 
living for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.